You may be seated. Good morning, church. It is good, good, good always to see you. And I'd like to direct your attention to our banners. Um, we've put these up, and when we started the book of Ephesians, we, we looked to these just about every week, and we're going to be doing that again. And so let me give you a refresher and a recap and bring you back to the excitement that is the book of Ephesians. The first banner we looked to was God's presence, and we used this funny word called transcendence, which, is, which was going above what's normal. And chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians, we looked at transcendent knowledge, knowledge about who God is and what he's done, that other than him actually telling us that and revealing that to us, we would not know it. And so God's presence is in heaven, and he's given us every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. But we also find that God's presence, though, is among his people, and not only beside them, but in them. And God's presence in us is what will change us. And so there was this struggle in the first three chapters of Ephesians. And the struggle was this. The struggle was we weren't being told to do anything. The only, the only exhortation we had was in chapter 2, I think, verse 11, where he said, remember. And that was kind of really not a command, but just remember, because he spent the whole first three chapters talking about the awesome things that God has done for us. Let me remind you some of these things. Chapter one, we hear about the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ, being chosen, being predestined, being adopted, get, having redemption and forgiveness of trespasses, having God's grace Getting God's knowledge, a prayer that God would open our eyes to understand these things because that's so important. We have an inheritance kept in heaven for us. One thing that we will inherit, heaven one day. Salvation. And then we have this promise and this guarantee of the Holy Spirit who comes to live inside us as a down payment and a guarantee that we've been given these things by God. And we learned that all of this was, was apart from any work that we've done. And that becomes even more evident as he prays, asking God to open the eyes of our hearts to be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Right? All the focus was on God, his power, his ability, what he's done. This transcendent knowledge above our efforts, up into him where he is. We'll get to chapter 2 when we learn salvation is from God alone. By grace, it's a gift of God. Through faith, not works, so that no one can boast. Again, again, about God, not us. We learn we had peace and been given true peace with God through Jesus. And that through Jesus, he brought down the wall of hostility, primarily between Jew and Gentile, and how God reconciles us and makes us friends not only with Him, but with one another. And true unity, true unity in this world between different people are found only in the church of God, as you see different people from different backgrounds, different ways of life coming together and having a common bond in Jesus Christ and loving one another, something powerful. We also learned that we were citizens, made, made citizens of heaven. And then chapter 3 reminds us, Paul tells us about the mystery of the gospel and how this mystery of what God had done through Jesus had been finally revealed to us and we were living it. 
And then he finished by praying for strength. Praying for God to show in our minds and our hearts that he is able far more abundantly to do anything above all that we ask or think. That's where we left off in chapters 1 through 3. And you would have heard Charles, and you would have heard me, and you would have heard Todd use this phrase. And the phrase went like this, and you're going to hear us say it every week as we finish Ephesians. Because this is very important, especially in chapters 4 through 6. The phrase is this, and you'll see it on the screen. A changed heart by God will bring a changed life for God. You see that? A changed heart by God will bring a changed life for God. And that is, one through three, is God changing our heart. Four through six is the evidence of a life that heart has been changed. And that's what we're going to see as we dive into it. A changed heart by God will bring a changed life for God. And so we're going to start this new series called A New Life in Christ. Paul is talking to believers. He's talking to his brothers and sisters who had already been changed by God. And now he's going to appeal to them. He's going to talk to them in light of all of one through three, in light of everything that God has done for us and through us and all that he's given us. Here's what our life should look like. That's four through six. Ephesians chapter four I want everybody there. It's very important that we're all looking at the words of Ephesians today. So if you don't have a Bible, then you share with someone next to you. We all need to be looking at these words. we got three verses. They're very quick. But every single word in all of these verses are very important. A new life in Christ. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. I'm going to read it, and then we're going to talk about it. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. It looks like everyone's there Listen to what Paul says. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Stop. Let's start here. You see the word I, therefore. The therefore is there because of all the things that he has said in chapters 1 through 3. Paul does this all the time. He sets up a a position and a a reason. He sets up our position and our identity in Christ to now then talk about what needs to follow that. So because of everything that I've said in 1 through 3, look at this. He says, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Verse 1, here's basically what it's saying. I want you to see, I've kind of like put a quote on the screen. I want to help you out. Verse 1, Paul is basically saying this. He says, look at the awesome blessings God has already given you. Now, respond appropriately. Look at the blessings God has already given you. Chapters 1 through 3, now, four through six, respond appropriately to that. Here's what he's not saying. Look here. Here's what he's not saying, and this is where we're going to get confused constantly because of the wickedness of our heart, always wanting to make it about us. He's not saying, walk worthy and God will give you these blessings. Do you hear it? He's not saying, walk worthy, do these things that you're going to read in four through six, and God will give you everything in one through three. That's not the point. No, 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 no. Paul is saying, Because God has already given you these things, make sure your life now responds in an appropriate manner. 
You see, the natural man, apart from the Spirit at work, cannot abide and live and heed the calling of any command of Scripture. It's only when we've actually been changed and the Spirit lives within us and the one who works in us both to will, to desire to do good things, and give us the ability to do good things can actually finally respond to some type of command. And so now that the Spirit's in us, now that the Spirit has changed our heart, Now we can actually hear some of these things and respond appropriately and live by that. This is very important. You're going to hear us say this over and over again. Because remember what we talked about in 1 through 3? What is the thing that we want to do? How do we want to approach Scripture? We want to run, open up 4 through 6, and find out what do I need to do? What do I need to do? That's what we really want to do with Scripture. Give me something tangible that I can follow. Give me a list and let me just do it and then feel better about myself. We can't do that. We need one through three first. We always need one through three. Why? Because a changed heart by God will bring a changed life for God. He has to do it. It starts with him. It starts with one through three. That's why Paul started with one through three. Now we're getting into chapters four through six. And as we read this, finally, this first verse where he's giving an exhortation, we need to know this. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of which you have been called. Let's look at this verse together. Everyone look right back down at verse 1. Right back down at verse 1. He says, a prisoner for the Lord. He said earlier in chapter 3, he reminded them that he was a prisoner for the Lord, but he said, don't worry about me though. This is a good thing. God's using me. Now he brings back up, I'm a prisoner for the Lord to remind them and to motivate them to know like, hey, listen, I've walked worthy for the Lord and it has led to my imprisonment. Walking worthy and doing the right thing and living the Christian life in the right way that honors God does not guarantee prosperity in this life. And so someone who will tell you, hey, you follow Jesus, you follow God, and you will get everything you ever wanted. You'll get money, you'll get fame, you'll get riches. Life will be smooth sailing for you. It's a lie. It's a false gospel. Don't listen to it. I, therefore, prisoner of the Lord, look at what I've gone through and look what it's gotten me. It's worthy, though. And he uses the word urge. Look down at that word. Maybe he says urge. Maybe he says be diligent. Maybe he says something else. But that word urge is him pleading with the people. There's, there's an intimate plea. Almost the word can be translated beg. But it's not just him trying to beg and ask and, and appeal and say do this. He's also using his authority here to give a command and say do this You need to do this by the authority I've been given by Jesus as an apostle. This is very important. I, therefore, Paul the apostle, prisoner of the Lord, urge you, command you, beg you, appeal to you, beseech you, as King James would say, to do what? To walk. Anytime you see the word walk in scripture, you need to think about this. My conduct of living, my daily conduct, what my life looks like urge you to walk in a manner worthy. And this is where this scale comes in. You're probably wondering, like, what in the world is this here for? Stop jabbering, Jasper, and get on to this thing that's standing behind you. The word worthy, literally, at the root of it, means to balance the scales. And we're going to use this here in a second to really see what that looks like. But the word worthy means to balance the scale. Balance the scales of what? He says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling 
to which you have been called. And he spent one through three setting up what that looked like. The salvation, the redemption, the promises, the inheritance, the hope. He said in chapter one, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. And what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us to believe? So he's saying, in light of everything that God's done to you, respond in a way that's appropriate for what he's done. So think about this. Someone saves you from a burning building. Saves you from a burning building. What's the natural, appropriate, reasonable response to that? (laughs) Thank you. But it may be more than just, thank you. Not quite like that. This is like on your knees. Oh my gosh, thank you. Parents, what if someone went in and risked their own life and saved your child from the burning building that you knew was dead. How would you respond? <sighs> I was going to go in myself, but, you know, I guess, I guess someone needed to. No, you'd be like, hey, where do you live? I'll come cut your grass every week. Give you Starbucks every time I come over, right? There's this natural response to the greatness that had been done. So as we look at 4 through 6, and we're going to start seeing a practical life, a new life in Christ, and all of these commands now start coming our way, if drudgery is what comes to your mind about having to do these things, then you need to go back to 1 through 3 because you're not understanding what God's done for you. Got to go back to 1 through 3 and understand what God's done for you because it's a natural, appropriate response to live for God now. A changed heart by God will bring a changed life for God. This is exciting, and I am so happy to get into it because, one, as a pastor, it's really hard to preach passages that doesn't have commands, and that was one through three. It was really tough, but now we have some tangible things here, so let's get into it. I, therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you have been called. The word walk worthy is used all throughout four through six. This chapter Later in the chapter, he says, walk no longer as the Gentiles walk. Chapter 5, he says, walk in love. 5.8, walk as children of light. 5.15, therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And so our conduct as a believer is extremely important and extremely appropriate in response to what God has done for us. And so this new theme of a new life in Christ, this is what we're going to see. Here's what my life should look like now that God has changed it. You get that? God's going to give us five things in this passages. Things that we can look at to show God's calling is deserving of a walk like this. And he's going to describe what this worthy walk looks like. Colossians tells us, Paul says in Colossians, Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. And here in this passage, he's going to explain even more in detail what a worthy walk looks like. So here, I have this scale here, and this scale represents the child of God, or let's say a person. The word worthy means to balance the scales. So whatever has been placed here, what flows from your life should result in a way that that appropriately matches what has been done. That's what that word worthy looks like. And so now he's going to explain, here are the things, here are the things that are worthy of the salvation and the hope and the blessings that God has given you. 
And one thing you're going to see as we get into this is that this surrounds, this surrounds the body of Christ and our relationship with one another. And this big idea and this big, huge theme of unity is going to be brought out and sprout from the ground to see that the child of God lives appropriately with other children of God. Look at the first one. He says here, walk worthy, the calling you've been called, with all humility. You see, if God has placed salvation here, salvation, a changed heart, will bring a changed life for God. And so with salvation comes characteristics or fruits of the Spirit that that we cannot fabricate within ourselves. Fruits from the Spirit that only come from Him. And the greatest characteristic, the greatest manner of walk, which is why it is first in this list, is the word humility. Maybe you can see there's not, but I have the word humility written here. The word humility. That's the first one he starts out with. Why? Because this is the first response to someone who has Jesus in them. Because this was Jesus. Philippians 2 tells us that he humbled himself. He lowered himself past the angels, past heaven, past the sky, and he came down and he was born in the likeness of you and me. And he put his equality with God to the side. And he lowered himself. You see, the Greeks did not have a word for humility. We can think and even surmise that maybe even Paul's the one who made this Greek word up. They didn't have a word for humility. Because to be of low mind and to be low was a weakness and something that was bad. You're not weak. You strive for fame. You strive for recognition and applause. You lift yourself up and it's survival of the fittest, and that's the way you live life. That's what's to be commended. You need to be the guy catching the touchdown like 17 feet in the air with one foot going in at the last second, bringing that left foot in, right foot in if it's the NFL, and getting the applause and doing great things. But this word humility comes out to the child of God who's walking for God in a manner worthy of him will have a life that's full of all humility. It's two words. One word meaning understanding The other word meaning lowliness. So the word literally means lowly in mind. What's the opposite of humility? Pride. Lifting ourselves up. Thinking in my mind I'm greater than I actually am. Putting myself on a pedestal and making life all about me. And being unconcerned with the needs and the cares of those around me. Humility. Humility is what comes in and takes us from the place that we want to put ourselves and and we lower ourselves to a low estate. We're told that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You know, there's no ceiling to the awesome lofty place that God resides. There's no ceiling to it. It doesn't end. Just like there's no floor to the pits of the lowliness we need to go. It was said by someone that if you grasp for humility and you get it, then it immediately turns into pride. Humility is a thing that we're always striving for, never attaining. Always striving for, never attaining. Always decreasing ourselves so Jesus and others can increase, like John the Baptist said. Always decreasing myself. Putting, and it starts in the mind. We're warned against false humility. There is false humility and we can deceive ourselves. It has to start in the mind. I have to see myself appropriately. I need to see myself as the weak jar of clay that I am. Not self-deprecating. Not self-deprecating. There's a difference. 
but seeing the accurate view of the weakness of my flesh and the importance of God above me and others above me. Do you see that? First and foremost, this is why this is one of the greatest characteristics of Jesus that he brought into the world. And apart from Christ, we cannot have this. And so the heart that has been changed by God will bring a worthy walk for God. What's the next one he says? He says, with all humility and gentleness. Gentleness. What does this word mean? What does this word mean? The opposite of this word would be the word roughness. The opposite would be the word rough. Analyze your life. Would you be characterized as a gentle person? Would people think you as a gentle person or think you as someone who's rough and abrasive and maybe excessively angry? It's said that gentleness, biblical gentleness, is the ability to always be angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong times. A gentleness. That when things come your way or things come your way that are, that, are, that are irritating or people are irritating or things that are done to you, your response and what you give is always a soft answer. Scripture tells us that a soft answer turns away wrath. And then we think about the, the meekness, which is another word that this can be termed, the meekness and the mildness of Jesus. Paul had this same gentleness. He talked to the Corinthians and he said, do you want me to come with a rod? Or would you rather me come in a spirit of gentleness? He knew the times that it was appropriate to be angry and to exercise and to bring forth a, a type of roughness that was appropriate. And relationship with one another as we're living among people who think differently, who are differently, who look differently, who are from different backgrounds, maybe even different nations. Gentleness is very important in the body of Christ with one another. And if gentleness is missing from your life, people will get sandpaper and there will be a rough spirit about you. And people will avoid you and turn the other way when you're coming. Is gentleness a characteristic of your walk for the Lord? If not, it's not worthy of what God's given you. A changed heart by God will bring a gentleness into your life for God. What about the next one? What does he say here? He says, with all humility and gentleness. Oh, our favorite one. We love this word. With patience. God, I want patience. And give it to me now. Patience. One thing you'll see as I was studying through this, there's so much similarity to all of these words. All these characteristics come up. There's, they all can kind of seemingly mean the same thing, but they point to something very specific. The word, the word patience is this idea of enduring grief. Persistent in enduring hardship and grief that's constantly, and constantly giving a consistent endurance and waiting through the hardship. You know, as Charles talked about the Christmas story about the word hope, we really look and see what it, like hope requires patience. Because for the two older people in the story of the sermon hope, they had to wait to basically the end of their life to see the things that they had been 
waiting for and looking for and longing for. And for all of us, the hope that we have in Jesus, we won't get it until this life is over. And so there's this waiting process. Patience is the thing that holds on to hope regardless of the circumstance. And patience among one another, one another, endures the hardship and the grief that you may get from a fellow brother or sister. It, it, it waits. It's patient and it endures the hardship. Patience. Think about the patience of God on our life. What has he had to endure from us? Thank goodness he's patient. Think about Jesus as he was patient with all people. Even those who needed like the greatest slap in the back of the head. He endured and was patient. Even the physical grief he went through on the cross. Patient. Patient. He says, the scripture tells us that we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And so as we see this manner of walk that's worthy of God's salvation, what we find is Jesus has come to live in us and he's going to live out through us. And so his characteristics and his manner of life becomes ours, right? And if it's in us, it'll start to flow out of us. Look what he says here next. He says, bearing with one another in love. This may be the hardest one. In, in some way. All of them are hard, but forbearance is a very interesting word. It simply means this. Put up with. Put up with. Raise your hand if you do a lot of putting up with in your life. Okay, hold on. Most of you have children. Raise your hand if you do a lot of putting up with in your life. Like, put it as straight as you can, right? Forbearance literally means to put up with. And we see God putting up with our sin, like in Romans when it says, Oh man, do you not do you presume upon the, the kindness and forbearance of the Lord, not knowing that it is it is his kindness that is meant to lead you to repentance? And so forbearance, especially in the church, is us putting up with one another. Listen, Paul wouldn't give this command or give this imperative. If we didn't have to put up with one another, right? Let's, let's just be honest. We're not all going to like each other. We're not all going to look at each other and say, that's someone I want to hang out with. Or that's, that's someone that uh, I want to be with every single day, 24-7. But, as we're going to see, because of what Jesus has done for us, there is a love for one another. A love for one another that creates this putting up with. So, let me challenge us here at West Olive. Do not shout out names. But who here, who here maybe have you not been putting up with that you should? Maybe to their face you're putting up with them, but, but in your conversation, in your mind and in your heart, there's not humility, there's not gentleness, there's not patience, there's not forbearance. Who is it? Because the child of God puts up with, but look what he says there, bearing one another in love. This is very important. 
forbearance that isn't prioritized by agape love, which is what that love is, God's type of love that's unconditional and seeks the highest good for the other person. Wants and seeks the highest good for the other person. The, the, the type of love that expects nothing in return. The love is what prioritizes and motivates the putting up with. So if you're just putting up with someone and it's not motivated by God's type of love, you will end up becoming bitter and frustrated and all of these character, characteristics will fall apart. So, the child of God who has their heart changed by God will bring a life lived for God and part of that walk, part of that manner of life involves forbearance. Look at the last one. Eager, he says, not Igor, but eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Here's why I want you looking at the Bible right here, because this, this, this little phrase, we will miss what he's trying to say. The words here are very important. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Here's what he's not saying. He's saying, go out and create unity. You and I cannot create unity. Unity. According to this verse, who has created the unity? Let me hear you say it. The Spirit. The Spirit has already created unity between us. Chapter 2 says that. This looks back to chapter 2 as he broke down the dividing wall of hostility and has brought reconciliation. Unity between us and God and unity, one accordness with one another. What are we told to do here? We're not told to create it. We're told to what? Starts with an M. Maintain it. But the, the, the closer thing that we need to focus on is, is not just maintaining it, but a eagerness, an eagerness to maintain it. A, literally, the word has with it a, a, zealous, a zealous lifestyle to make every effort, or the word means to make haste, to run to, to be quick to. So in our heart, in our walk that's worthy for the Lord, there's this eager, fast-running, zealous effort to maintain the thing that God has already brought between us. Implying that we can mess it up. But what does he say here next? He says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In the bond of peace isn't saying you maintain it through that. But he's saying the atmosphere in which the unity of the Spirit exists and should be found is in the common bond you and I have with one another because of the peace that God's brought us. Right? So what, again, is he doing here? Everything that he's telling us to do is motivated by chapters 1 through 3. Everything flows from a heart that has already been changed. Everything is motivated by an understanding, eyes that have been enlightened to what God has done and seeing his characteristics and bringing that out in us. He who began a good work will bring it into completion. And so if God is in you, he's going to work in you. But here's another implication with all of this. Paul is actually showing us that we have to make a conscious, legitimate effort with these things because we still live in the flesh. We still are going to be prone to wonder We're going to fight these things, and we're not going to naturally want to do this. But the Spirit lives in us, and He's going to make us miserable if we don't. 
someone who has the Spirit in them, cannot avoid these characteristics and be happy and have a peaceful, conscious, unburdened life. The Scripture tells us like Lot, who lived in Sodom and Gomorrah, righteous Lot, tormented day and night. You put yourself in a situation to be away from righteousness. If you have the Spirit in you, you will be tormented day and night. So if you're devoid of these things, you're not tormented, then it means you probably don't have the change of heart in the first place. But the final thing he says and the goal he's going for here is the walk that is worthy of the Lord that's going to balance the scales has within it an eagerness in the heart and a zealous effort to see the maintenance or the unity of the Spirit being maintained in the atmosphere of the common bond of peace that we have from God with him and with one another. And when all of these characteristics are brought together, what we find is a walk that is worthy of the Lord. And the scales are then balanced. The focus of one another is significant. And the word occurs 40 times in Paul's letters. One another. And the only thing that will balance the scales, bring us a walk that is worthy of what God has given us, is a life that will live for God, a life that will bear the things that God says, this is worthy of what I've given you. Now let me say this. This isn't in the passage, but here's what I want to bring up. Because lest you go away again with the propensity in your mind to want to make everything about what you have to do, I want to help encourage you. Because let me ask you this. Personally, do you stay here do you stay here all the time, no movement, just, per, like just perfect, just never moving, just, just constantly bearing these things? Does this like constantly happen? Does your life look like that? Please raise your hand if it does because like we need to talk because I'm missing something here. What, what's the reality of life? The reality of life is you have people that really come in and quest, make you question all of these things, Right? Right, and then you have crisis that comes in, and it, 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 oh man, it just, oh, it pulls you down. And then, then you have all of these circumstances that are keeping you and pushing you down to these extremes, right? Trying to unbalance the walk that's worthy for him. And you got the enemy who's constantly bringing every barrage and every attack to you. And so when you find, you kind of like look in the mirror and you like have a long time with God. And you're like, God, I am horrible. I don't walk in the way you want me to. And, and all I can see is where I'm failing and not getting it right. But what we find out is that if God is truly in us and he's working in us, he will always balance the scales. And life will have this ebb and flow. And we will struggle. But we won't live in these extremes. We have two warnings in scriptures, two warnings to the child of God that have extremes of a life that may think that it's saved, may think it belongs to God, but living in the extremes proves that you do not have the salvation and the calling of one through three. What are the extremes? One of the extremes, one of the extremes is a funny word. It's the word licentiousness. And we're told, like Peter tells us this, live as free people, Live as a people that's free. God's made you free. Jesus has made you free. You're no longer confined and bound to the burden and the works and the requirements of the law. So live as free. But there's this warning, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants for God. And part of living as a servant for God, that 
humble servant means I'm going to walk in a manner worthy of him. So if I claim to have been changed by God, but my life only shows an attitude of leave me alone, I'm in Jesus, I can do whatever I want to do, you can't tell me what I want to do, and I have freedom, and there's never any conviction or prompting to have these things with your brothers and sisters, then that's a life that is completely unbalanced and not working in a, walking in a manner worthy of him. And the warning is, you may not have a true salvation if this is your life. Now, what's the other person? The other person is found in the book of Galatians and even Colossians. The person who's told that if you get circumcised, you make Christ of no value. The other person who says, you know, that faith in Jesus just, just isn't enough. Like I, this, this love that God has for me and this unconditional work that he's done for me on my behalf. It just, I can't rely on just that. I need something else. And so what we do, we take the bar and we pull it down with our own efforts and our own works, and we put the scale out of balance. And the characteristic between these two extremes, the characteristic is that it's all about me, about my freedom, or about my efforts. My freedom or my efforts. Neither one are worthy, worthy of what God gives to his people. Yes, we will go between the two. You realize that? We're going to sway. We're going to struggle But God will always balance us out because his spirit's in us. But the extremes reveal a person who may not have the spirit in them because they don't understand these things. Let me read you a verse. Colossians chapter 2, Paul says this, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they're used according to human precepts and teachings. These indeed have an appearance. They have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The only thing that is going to create the life that we need to produce and that God wants to see is a life that has first been changed by God. And if God has changed it, it will bring, it will bring a heart that can respond to the exhortation of Ephesians 1 through 3 and balance the scales and give you a walk worthy for the Lord. So here's the challenge and the application. What do you see in your life? As you function in the body amongst your brothers and sisters, one Do you see a a humility, a humility of Christ that's a lowliness of mind that that puts Jesus and others before yourself? When you examine your life, do you see a a gentleness? And do others see a gentleness that's always considerate and courteous? It's not rough, always soft in every situation and always appropriately angry. Do you see in your life a patience, something that, that endures grief and hardship and waits and never loses hope? Is that there? And then amongst one another, is there a patience with one another? And then, and then are you putting up with one another in love, seeking the highest good of those around you, able to allow for the disagreements and the differences to exist and forbearing one another in agape love that's unconditional, always wanting the highest good for that person. And then finally, is that leading to a heart that is zealous and eager 
to make every effort to maintain, maintain the thing that God's already given us with one another, and that's unity. And is there a common bond of peace with one another? I hope that there is, and I hope that if you're convicted, one, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm failing in some of these areas, that you'll fall on your knees and ask God to, hey, you've got to supply this, I can't do this on my own. Motivate me, go back to chapters one through three, and reflect on the awesomeness of what God has done. Because what Paul is doing here, think about it. He's motivating them to walk in a manner worthy of one through three. So even Paul's going back to say, that's the motivation. Go back to one through three, that's the key. Go back to one through three. Study it, eat it, sleep it, breathe it. Get yourself back in the mood where you understand and you're reflecting on Jesus and who he is and what he's done and your life will naturally, appropriately respond to that. Maybe you're like, you know what? I'm one of the extremes. All I care about is living life my way, whether in my own efforts or in my own freedom. Listen, the warning that we have through the New Testament is that salvation may not exist in you if you live in those extremes. Not ebb and flow through them, but live in those extremes. And if you're convicted of that, the answer is the same answer that every single one of us needs, and that's, Jesus, you're real. You lived for me. You died for me. You rose from the dead for me, and I believe that. Would you please forgive me of my sins and save me? A faith in Jesus that will change your heart and then change your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your love. Thank you for all that you give us, all that you have given us. And as we go day in and day out with our walk and our conduct of life, we all admit we fall short every day in one way or another. But God, I pray that your spirit that's inside of us and the calling that you've given us, that we would make this effort through the help of the Spirit, to live in a walk in a manner worthy of what you've given us. And apart from your help, we can do nothing. Be patient and kind with us. And as we see your kindness, your gentleness, your patience, your humility, the unity and the one accord you bring for us individually, that'll motivate us to give that to others, especially our brothers and sisters. We pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen.